guys, it's Melissa. Since we're an independent podcast, your support means the absolute world, whether that's on social media, in a podcast review, or a word of mouth recommendation. If you've been enjoying this podcast and would like to take it a step further, I now have a support feature where you can contribute a one-time donation at whichever price you'd like. Click the link in the episode description to learn more. Thanks guys, now enjoy the show. Welcome to Mimosa Sisterhood, a podcast that celebrates women. Hello, beautiful friends, and welcome back to Mimosa Sisterhood Podcast, where we celebrate women's voices and stories, past and present. I am so sorry that this episode is coming at you a few days late, and even weirder on a Monday. We don't ever release episodes on Monday, but since I am coming at you a few days late, I wanted to get it out as soon as possible, especially since I have an extra bonus episode coming at you this Thursday. And that is because I feel absolutely guilty for missing my week. So I'm hoping that this extra fun bonus episode will make up for me being tardy to the party. If you've been following me on social media, you will have seen that I have been so busy this past week. I took an entire week off of my actual paid job so that I could attend all of the podcast things. I spent the first two days at a podcast production camp that was hosted through the Asa Collective Network. And then I spent the remainder of the week at Podcast Movement Evolutions, which was a convention here in the Los Angeles area. So your girl was busy learning, networking, chatting, drinking, making new podcast friends. And I am telling you, I am exhausted. I am so tired. I don't know if this is just me now being in my 30s, but 22-year-old Melissa would be completely ashamed at how lame I am. I can barely hang. My body feels like it's like been beaten to a bloody pulp. I can barely stay up past 8 o'clock at night. I don't know what's happened to me. Either I've completely crashed and burned after two years of living completely antisocial during a pandemic or I'm literally just aging. I don't know what it is, but I did my best (laughs) to live up to Mimosa Sisterhood standards. I made a lot of good friends and it was a really great time. So sorry for a late podcast, but your girl was putting in a lot of work. (laughs) I wasn't off the job. I was not on vacation. I was actually working overtime. So yeah, that that's a little update from me. Also, I am so excited because I finally get to shout somebody out on my podcast, and this person is getting a shout out because they sponsored four glasses of bubbly through my sponsor a mimosa feature on my website. I'm sure you're wondering who this remarkable, angelic, generous person could be, and that, my friends, is my Uncle John. Shout out to Uncle John. Woo! Seriously, though, if you're listening, thank you so much. That was the most exciting thing I'd ever seen. I've had my sponsor up for months and no one's contributed. (laughs) So when four glasses of bubbly came through by my own uncle, I literally was like in tears. Thank you so much. That was so sweet. And you are such a trendsetter because I let 
everybody on social media know that you sponsored me four glasses of bubbly. And then right after that, two more people came through sponsoring your girl with some booze. So way to lead the pack. You are a true leader, a true legend. And I appreciate you so much. If anybody listening is interested in sponsoring a bubbly or a beer or a cocktail or a shot of tequila, whatever your poison might be, you can go to the link tree in my Instagram or Twitter bio, um, or you can go to my website, mimosasisterhood.com. So thank you so much. Everybody's support means the absolute world. I love you guys so much. And let's get into the episode. This week, we are celebrating Women's History. What a fucking surprise. No, but really, it's Women's History Month. Today, Jordan Redwine is joining me back on the mic. Uh, Jordan's one of my favorite people on planet Earth. I actually met her at a convention in 2018. And now we are BFFs that live on opposite ends of the country. But I invited Jordan on to the podcast for Women's History Month. And we had a fantastic time celebrating a woman that I have never heard of. I am guessing none of you have heard of her either, but she's such an important woman that invented a very important product that so many of you are very grateful for. And then Jordan brings a more well-known woman onto the podcast, and we talk about her incredible life, all of her accomplishments, and all of the things she's done that somehow none of us knew about. So once again, another incredible episode featuring two absolute icons. And I hope everybody today leaves here learning something new and popping bottles for all of the incredible women that have come before us and left their mark in history, changing shit up, saving lives, dominating the earth. And for all the women that are alive today, keep kicking ass and taking names because that's what we're good at. All right. Without further ado, pour that alcoholic beverage and let's get ready to party. Jordan, welcome back to the show. Oh, hi, Melissa. How's it going? <laughs> Great. I feel like last time I said we sound like we're on a game show and I almost <laughs> said that again. <laughs> we just have that big, big game show energy. I, I love it because it just makes me happy to see you and talk to you every time I'm here. Like, Yeah, we're just spunky and bubbly and here to have a good time. We're drinking our wine. We're about to talk about women. I mean, yeah, it's it's we've already won. We've won the prize. We're here. We're, we're doing living it. our best, best lives, obviously. <laughs> well, welcome back. I was going to say you're here celebrating Women's History Month with me during Women's History Month, mm-hmm. which like... I guess isn't that cool since we're a women's history podcast to begin with. So I don't know like how much further we can celebrate the celebration, <laughs> but thank you for being here and coming back again for some more awesome women in history. Well, thank you for um, having me back because when you said you can come on a women's history month, like uh, episode, I, I felt like that was the ultimate honor invitation. I'm like going, Oh my God, I get the month. I get to be part of, the special month. Yeah, so, <laughs> so happy. And then, like, I had an idea for a lady I was going to cover, but she was very, um, as Bo Burnham would say, she was problematic. And oh. I was like, oh, I don't want to highlight that one for Women's History Month. We'll, we'll, 
we'll save her for later. I don't know. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. That happens often. You, like, start your research and you're like, oh, oh. um, uh, we'll table that for another time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted somebody who I, I could just uh, put up an altar and pray to this this lady because uh, she's the ultimate badass and just love her. So, well, uh, I know your podcast is about to be up and running again. Tell yes. us. First of all, remind everybody about your podcast, what you do, when you're launching, and where they can find it, and all the good stuff. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so um, my lovely partner, Emily, um, who is based out in Seattle, and I am based in Detroit, and we have a podcast called A Novel Adaptation, where we, we read books and watch their film or TV adaptations, and then we just kind of talk about them. And, you know, we first started off thinking that we were just going to, um, you know shit on adaptations and then we as we got further along we realized oh there's more to adaptations than just shitting on them and being i don't know superior saying well the book was better because one (laughs) that's not always the case (laughs) um but um two you know like there's a lot of complex reasons why people change stuff for books but anyway we talk about it we love it or we hate it and we just go to town and what's really cool guys listeners everybody ladies um theys thems um (laughs) Melissa is guest starring on our uh, season premiere, which is coming out March 7th. So, yes, I finally got her on. I twisted her arm long enough and said, you have to come on. But, you know, there was homework involved. So that was always kind of hard. But that's why I picked a short book. (laughs) So, yeah, we recorded this like a few months ago, but we're finally like, okay, we're ready to release it now. And um, what's the book that you picked, Melissa? Girl Interrupted. Yeah, that was a ride. It was a ride. And I you'll hear this in the episode, so I won't give too much stuff away. But I loved that movie when I was in high school. It was one of my favorites as like a really depressed emo 16-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you haven't heard of Girl Interrupted, you don't know what I'm talking about. It is a story about a handful of young girls that are in, like, a psychiatric ward. And it's their the story of their backgrounds, how they ended up there, and, like, these strong bonds and friendships they make while they're living together in this ward. And it's a whole lot of sadness and tragedy and love and humor and horror and all of the things that a depressed 16-year-old lives for. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you've got... You've got also a stellar cast of Brittany Murphy and Angelina Jolie and Elizabeth Moss. And it's yes. just keeps on giving. And of course, these women uh, are all just, they just don't obey their parents and they're sexually active. So they must be, <laughs> there must be something wrong with them. So straight to the ward. Yeah. <laughs> You're inconvenient. Go away. Yeah. So. Once it's live on your podcast, I'll let all the listeners know they can head over to your show and listen to it. It's so great. I it honestly like inspired me, which like, God, I'm going to need a full team to like accomplish this. But it started to get like my brain thinking of how cool it would be to have a Mimosa Sisterhood book club. Oh, where like the audience can list like we can all be reading a book and then, like, people can come on and talk about it. I don't know. I like where your head's going. Right? There. I'm always down for a good book club. 
Yeah. Right? I know. But then I'm like, well, hold on, Melissa. It takes you like six months to read a book. How are you going to do this? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you could just do it quarterly. A quarterly book club. Right? Yeah. That seems to make more sense. It's less of a commitment, but at least you have something always there on your end, your bedside table or me just in my purse because I, I'm an impatient person and if I'm sitting more than five seconds without a phone or a book in my hand, I lose my mind. So, <laughs> yeah. But, so yeah, you can follow us anywhere you can get your podcasts. We're there. We also have a website, a noveladaptation.com. All of our web, uh, episodes are posted there. And I think, Melissa, you mentioned that you were going to post it on your stream, too. Heck yeah, but I'm going to make everybody listen to it on your stream first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Everyone can come over here and listen to it, Melissa, but everyone has to promise to f- come back and at least listen to one more episode from my stream. <laughs> Okay, we, we we cover a wide a wide variety of genres. We've got children's books and horror books and popular books. We did Twilight, like we shat on Twilight so hard. Yeah, come. All right. Well, what are you drinking? Mm, well, I uh I I do a specific wine box, but since this wine box is not sponsoring you, I will not say its name. <laughs> but uh. I, I get this wine box and I have some pretty good wines in it. And this one is Conti Crivelli. Um, Benevenit. It's it's Italian. I can't. <laughs> I'm learning Italian and yet I can't read this. Benevento? Yeah. Still doesn't tell me what it is, but uh, I, I enjoy it. My only problem is that uh, it's a little bit drier than I wanted tonight. And since I can't read Italian, I didn't uh, bother to test this out. But it's still good. <laughs> Just not what I was really craving. What about you? I am also less than thrilled with my wine tonight. I mean, I'm going to drink it and I'm not like miserable, but (laughs) it's not what I was expecting. So I got this at the Trader Joe's Mm. and I purely picked it off looks. Sure. (laughs) As one does. I'm guilty of that. Mm -hmm. It's called Love Olivia. And it has a cute cute little watermelon. And, like, at first glance, I was like, oh, yum, this is going to be, like, a good rosé. It's nothing like a rosé at all. Like, you know how rosés, while, like, light, they still have, like, a very strong, like, alcohol wine flavor still. Mm -hmm. This does not taste like alcohol at all. So it's a watermelon wine. And it, I had to check. I was like, does this even have alcohol in it? Did I just oh buy, like, a non-alcoholic wine? Oh. I literally checked. It has 8% alcohol. So it's there. And they claim that it's a sweet wine. It's refreshing. And it's watermelon, light-bodied, juicy. And that it's great chilled. And so I just, like, I'm like, why does it not, like resemble a rosé in the slightest i guess it's more similar to what is that what are those like dessert wines called oh like a gewürztraminer and an ice wine yeah like there's one in particular that i'm thinking about that i can now no longer name but it just was not what i was expecting it is very sweet and it doesn't taste like wine at all it tastes like a non-alcoholic fruit juice and it's so sweet. I had to add like five ice cubes into my glass to just like water it down a bit. <laughs> wow. 
there will be there will come a time this summer where I will want that. But yeah. not today. <laughs> no, no, no. And that's what I was going to say. This is absolutely poolside wine bottle or like patio during spring or like Easter brunch. Like absolutely 100%. But like Monday night, 7 o'clock, not hitting the spot. <laughs> not, that's not. A, all right, everybody. It's not a Monday night, 7 o'clock wine. <laughs> make note of that. But yeah, I mean, if anybody out there likes really sweet, easy to drink wines, you'll love it. Trader Joe's, it's called Love Olivia. And they also had two other ones. They had a strawberry one and they had a peach one. So, and I think it was like $4. Of course. (laughs) Blessed be Trader Joe's for they are amazing. (laughs) All right. Well, that's our wine review. Um, Cheers. Yo, cheers, yeah. <laughs> All right, women time. It's, it's, Where, let's it's, talk about it's, women. Let's, let's do it. Here. I was thinking I'd go first just because I have kind of a shorter, sweeter story. I like short and sweet. Yeah, so I thought maybe we'll do a quick short and sweet one and then we can get into the beef of the story with you. I don't know if mine's that beefy, <laughs> but... Uh, Mine, mine. Think of it as soft innocence. I'm gonna oh. badass with some soft innocence involved. You'll you'll see when I get there. But okay, cool. Yeah, I was like, I almost never have a short story, and so I'm like, all right, I finally have one. Let's do it. But it's nevertheless, it might be short. It's it's good. It's a great one. Please do tell. So I am talking today about Marion Donovan. Hmm. Do you know the name? Have you heard Head of the tilt. name? No. And I feel like I should be ashamed, right? Oh, I didn't know the name. Never heard of her. I would be surprised if anybody listening has heard of her. But even though none of us have heard of her, she has drastically improved the lives of many women and parents across the globe. Ooh, I'm hooked. Because she was the inventor of the disposable diaper. Oh, snap. Yeah, good for her. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. And there's a reason why we don't know who she is, and we'll get into that later. And it's very disappointing, just forewarning. Does it involve a man taking her credit? Of course. Oh, of course it does. Who would have thought? Sorry, I spoiled it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the kicker is... The man who it was. That's oh. going to get you even more fired up because okay. uh, you, we know him. We know him, actually. So let's talk about Marion. She was born on October 15th, 1917 in South Bend, Indiana. Her mom passed away when she was seven years old. So she was raised by her father who ran a manufacturing plant with his identical twin brother. The two twin brothers invented a number of items, but their most notable invention was called the South Bend lathe. I think that's how you pronounce it. I don't know much about machinery. Oh, sure. I've got one in my garage. I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> so, well, I know what the lathe is. It's a machine that they invented that basically will rotate a piece of material while you're working on it. So whether oh. you're cutting it, sanding it, drilling it, it'll like keep moving. I got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen those. Yeah. That's the lathe or the lath. I don't know. 
so yeah, a lot of the things they invented were related to like cars and machinery, but that was their most successful invention. You know, I joked about it, but I'm also pretty sure I still have that in my garage now that you explained it. So. <laughs> I mean, I think that like if anybody's a woodworker or like works on cars, this is like still existing. Yep. <laughs> so... Marion spent most of her time at the manufacturing plant as she was growing up as a child. Really, after school, she'd go there every day and just hang out. And her father encouraged her to be very innovative from a very young age. So, for example, when she was in elementary school, she had her first invention, and that was a new kind of tooth cleaning powder for brushing your teeth. So her father uh, helped her work on the creation and they sort of like built this, created this thing together. I don't think it like hit off the ground running or anything, but that's what they were doing as father-daughter duo in their lives. Sure, yeah. (laughs) Making toothpaste. (laughs) Every kid's dream. I guess it was the 1920s, so maybe like that actually was a pretty smart invention. Who knows what they were using back then? Oh, yeah. (laughs) But then by the 1930s, late 1930s, she so she went through school. I don't have a ton of info on her life other than what I just described, her younger life. So we kind of like skipped through high school and now we're at college. So in 1939, she received a Bachelor of Arts in English Literature at Rosemont College in Pennsylvania. And then from there, she went on to work for several years as an assistant beauty editor at Vogue magazine in New York. Well. Right? Okay, yeah. Sure. That 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 <laughs> took a surprise to her. I didn't think it was gonna go in that direction, but okay. Good for her. Good for her. Yeah. And so she was out editing shit at the Vogue magazine in New York, made it to the big city, had a real job as a woman in the 1930s, like was doing the thing until she met a man named James Donovan in Uh. 1942, who was a leather importer. And as women did during this time period... The minute that they found a suitable husband, they quit their jobs and they started a family. So that's what she did. Her and James uh, shacked up. They got married. They moved to Westport, Connecticut. And Marion had three children and began her life as a housewife. But smart-ass Marion was never going to just sit around and bake casseroles all day and chain smoke cigarettes in the house. (laughs) No, 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 no. No, no, no. (laughs) She was a natural-born inventor, and she had her million-dollar business idea within, like, the first couple years of motherhood. So, like all mothers out there, Marion dealt with a lot of shit. Literally and figuratively, I'm sure. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Her whole life was cleaning babies' butts. And she literally, though, I'll tell you why, she soon realized how horrible and disgusting this experience was for moms during this time period because they were using cloth diapers. Yeah. The original diaper. And if anybody doesn't know, cloth diapers were what it sounds like a piece of cloth that they wrapped around a baby's butt and tied it on the sides with like a what are those safety Safety pins pins. yep they use safety pins to hook it on each side of the baby's like hips 
And they were a nightmare. Squirming toddlers must have been fun, by the way. Let here, let's jab, let's try to get jab this pin right? in a cloth while this kid is like, uh. right? Yeah, and so these cloth diapers were not water resistant. It would be like taking like the dish towel in the kitchen and wrapping it around your kid's butt. Like, so gross. That's all that it was. It was like a little cloth towel, and so babies pee and poop like every 35 minutes especially when they're newborns because mom is having to like feed them so often that like the minute the breastfeeding's over it's like straight to piss and shit and you have to do it so frequently that it's like never ending breastfeeding never ending diaper change so constantly having to change diapers 24 7 but even worse than that because these cloth diapers were not water resistant, the fluids were seeping through the cloth diaper, getting all over the children's clothes, getting all over bed sheets, getting all over mom's clothes, getting all over the furniture, and was just like literally everywhere. Yeah, that's, you know, oh, keep going, because I have a question I want to ask you, which I'm pretty sure you're going to answer. Go for it. Yep. So in addition to that, mommy was responsible of washing these cloth diapers and pretty sure doing it by hand in sink. So having to open up this cloth diaper, wash off everything that's in it, soap, water, hang it out on the clothing pin outside, let this stained piece of cloth breathe in the wind, and once it's dry, wrap it back in on baby's butt. And... I mean, the thought of having to, like, hand wash a dirty diaper over and over and over and over and over all day long, in addition to it just getting on everything, spilling out everywhere, a fucking disaster. Yeah. (laughs) Disgusting. And do you think the men were helping? No. (laughs) Of course not. So at this time, there was a solution for this, but it wasn't a good solution. So there was a thing called rubber pants that babies would wear. And they really, like, weren't pants. They kind of just look like a diaper, but they're made out of this rubber material. And they were horrible because they gave babies really bad uh, diaper rash. So the moms never wanted to use them because if they use them, babies' butts would be, like, ripped up to shreds. And now babies crying and, you know, in pain and that's a whole nother hassle to have to be dealing with. I'm actually, you've got me intrigued. I'm looking up rubber pants. Me too. I tried so hard to find a full article on it, but I could find vintage pictures on Pinterest of like old advertisements of babies' rubber pants. Hmm. Are you going to put that in the show notes? I will put them in the show notes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I. They look very... Oh, no. I'm just seeing pantaloons. Oh, no. Wait. Here we go. Yeah. Like, if you Google... I was Googling uh, baby rubber pants 1940s. Ah. Uh, yeah. And yeah. you can see a couple of them pop up. Like, vintage 50s latex baby. Yeah, they're definitely a sight for something. You know what it looks like? It looks like a shower cap. It does. Oh, my God. Thank you. Yeah. Put a shower cap on your baby's ass and call it rubber pants. Great. It looks like they cut two holes out of a shower cap and slid a baby in there. And I bet you they charged you more. Like, <laughs> Yes. 
So uh, it's actually funny that we're talking about shower caps because I'm about to get into a shower related story. So, um, so yeah, so that's what's happening at this time period for moms. And your options are cloth diaper with shit and piss everywhere or rubber pants that left your baby in pain with horrible rash, crying, unhappy. So lose, lose on both ends. Until 1946, when Miss Marion looked at her shower curtain one day and got an idea to design a waterproof diaper cover. So she cut cloth from her actual shower curtain and sewed it into a reusable, leak-proof, and breathable diaper cover that came with, like, a pouch. So you would insert, like, the cloth diaper inside of it. And that's where, I guess, pee and poop would then go. But... You've got that extra layer of protection. And it probably looked pretty because it was a shower curtain, too. So style is (laughs) everything. Yes, yeah, so it it prevented diaper rash because it had the cloth. Well, I don't know 100% if it was cloth, but it's described as an absorbent material and that basically it went inside this waterproof diaper cover. So she got this idea, started making things. She blew through like tons of shower curtains, just like shower curtain after shower curtain. And she eventually perfected a leak-proof diaper cover that did not create diaper rash, which she called boater, because it helped babies stay afloat, which I don't really understand. Uh, I feel like that came from, like, that was the first draft in a, in a room at a marketing firm or whatever. Like, what if we call the boaters and here's why? And <laughs> then got thrown out. Like, that's what it sounds like. Yes. Which actually makes sense because uh, I'll explain in a moment. So mm-hmm. the final product was eventually made using nylon parachute cloth and it featured an extra innovation. She replaced safety pins and she instead used metal and plastic snaps. So, you know, those little snap clips that like still exist today. They're like little circles. I know exactly. Like you said it and I was like, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So safety pins were out the picture and now we're working with a reusable waterproof diaper cover with snaps. So, I mean, this thing, it's never existed. So she's literally created like an invention and it was great she like it worked and not only worked but people were excited about it so she went out and about to pitch her diaper cover but no manufacturers at this time were interested in the boater so she basically decided to manufacture it herself hence the fact that there was no one there to step in and say your name sucks let's call it something different (laughs) no one said um maybe we should try something different okay but i have a question yeah uh hand raise uh uh what about her dad i don't know i don't know did they own a manufacturing firm like what like a factory why why did they like did they not believe in her invention or did they have a tiff i don't know i feel like there's some no idea there's a lifetime original movie waiting for right? this. Yeah. And you know, I read multiple articles and watched a couple like little mini documentaries about her on YouTube. Nobody, I never heard one thing about her dad ever again after what I described oh. in the beginning of her life. Okay, so that takes out my theory of like who stole the <laughs> the idea from her. Not All her right. dad. Not her dad. No. 
Um, Yeah, who knows what happened to him? A part of me wonders, though, like, in this time period, if she now was married to a man, like, were women still, like, getting favors from their parents once they were, like, married off and, like, living with a new dude? I don't know what that patriarchal bullshit was in the 50s, but, like, yeah, I guess the, when they when the father literally hands over the wa- the girl to the husband, they went, she's your problem now. Like, bye? I don't. Whenever I read about this time period, I always just think of Mad Men. <laughs> and, like, try to, like, imagine the characters in that show and, like, the whole dynamics. And they never had good relationships with their parents. And I know it's just a television show. <laughs> uh, also, I don't think that's far-fetched. <laughs> See, now, when I think about this time period, I automatically go to Midge Maisel. Yeah, and same. I like every time I see Midge Maisel in her outfits and her Pyrexes, I'm like, right. oh gosh, I wanna. And then I like you talk about cloth diapers. I'm like, no, I don't wanna. <sighs> I don't wanna. No. No, thank you. No, thank you. So, so yeah, every manufacturer declined her for the boater, and she's just like, screw you. I'm taking this to the market. I know people want this. She was right. Uh, The boater debuted at Saks Fifth Avenue in New York City in 1949, where it became an instant success. Okay, so it's available for rich white parents. Got it. Yeah. True. All right. Yeah. She received four patents for her invention in 1951, which she then sold later that year to Kiko Corporation for $1 million. Like one million in nineteen fifty one, or like something yes. that is equivalent to one million. Holy one million shit. in nineteen fifty one. Wow, which in today's money is who the hell knows? Uh, you know what? I'll look at. No, I'm not even gonna bother. It's just a lot. <laughs> I got it. I got it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so she made bank selling the boater. And by the time that this happened, when she sold off those patents, by the time that happened, she was already on to her next invention, which was going to be bigger and better than the boater. And that invention was a fully disposable diaper with a super absorbent material. And that is what we are people are using today. So this was not a super easy task because, again, remember the number one feature it had to have was preventing diaper rash. So that was difficult to come across in this time to figure out what material do we have and can use that will work and be comfortable. So it took a lot of trial and error, but she eventually discovered a solution to the problem, and that was by using a special sturdy absorbent paper composition, which ended up working. I don't really know, like, I can't visualize what that looks like, but I literally think she was able to sew in a type of paper material that, like, was able to pull the moisture off the baby's butt and, like, store it in the diaper. Okay. And, like, it probably had, like, a more comfortable covering that was, like, soft on the baby's butt. Don't really know, but she figured it out and it worked. (laughs) So it was another huge success in terms of the fact that like the product did what it was intended to do, but she faced once again insane difficulties to get it out into the market because every large American manufacturer declined 
her product and her pitch stating that it was, quote, unnecessary and impractical. Tale as old as time. <laughs> yeah. So I we already kind of like mentioned this, but once again, I think it's important to note that obviously it's the 1950s and we're dealing with men that are running these large manufacturing corporations and it's men that are telling her that the disposable diaper is unnecessary and impractical. And also important to note that I guarantee not one of these men had ever changed a diaper despite having probably like five kids apiece. The fucking patriarchy. It's exhausting. Oh my god. How exhausting could you imagine it would be for her? A woman who's literally dealing with diapers 24-7 and to be told by some fucking idiot, this doesn't make sense. No one needs this. It's like, how would you know what we need? I I couldn't imagine. Oh my gosh, the the grace and the patience and no, I just just wouldn't be able to survive that time. (laughs) No, we would end up in the ward. Yeah. We'd start screaming and they'd be like, she's mad. Send her off. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Mommy had to go away for a while. So literally, that was literally what was happening. Yeah. So yeah, her invention was rejected by literally every single manufacturer. And uh, I don't know why, but she didn't attempt to market it herself. Like, with the boater, how she just was like, well, fuck you, then I'm going to go out and manufacture it on my own. Well, she- don't forget, she did name her first inve- her diaper invention the boater, so she probably <laughs> knew that marketing wasn't really, like... <laughs> well, I think, know. too, she probably, because she made so much money off that product, that maybe a part of her was like, whatever, is it worth the work of, like, going out there again and fucking fighting for this? So maybe she just, like, cut her losses and was like, we're good, we have a fuck ton of money, whatever. And she probably was using her own product at her house anyway. She's probably like, well, I have the invention. So if no one else wants it, then good luck with cloth diapers, you know? Right. So she basically tabled this idea and moved on to other things. She went back to school where she earned a degree in architecture at Yale University. That was so nice that her husband let her do that. I, I know, right? Actually, she might not have been married at this point. Oh. Because I don't I do know that she ended up having a second husband at some point, but I could not find any information on when she got a divorce, why, or when she remarried. You know what? Good. I don't care. Her husbands are <laughs> irrelevant at this point. Like <laughs> Yeah. But it's a good point you make, because it's possible that she might not have been married at the time you that know, she some- went off to Yale. Some some women like change their hair color or get bangs when they divorce or break up. Uh, she just went to uh, Yale, uh, Ivy League and got a degree. Good yep. for her. Yeah. Yeah. So she got that degree in architecture and then went on to design her own home in Greenwich, Connecticut uh, in 1980. So some time has gone by. And by the 1980s, she'd already invented numerous practical solutions to other problems around her household. Wait, so, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. so so the disposable diaper still wasn't around until like even after the 1980s? Um it was around at this point and I'm about to get oh, to sorry. it in one second. No, it's okay. It's just okay. I just wanted to excited. list off some of these things she did before I drop a huge bomb and ruin your uh, life. Yeah, that bomb. <laughs> 
waiting for that one. So yeah, so she's like over the course of 20 years after her diaper got rejected, she's now went to college, remarried, and is inventing a bunch of other shit that makes her life easier at home. So a couple of things she invented. She invented something uh, that she called the big hang up, which was a 30 garment compact hanger. And I think that still exists today where you can hang multiple things on like one long hanger. Yeah, you can get them at Ikea or Target. Yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> I've seen them. So that, she invented a soap dish that drained into the sink when like it was soapy, you know, and leaving liquid behind. It like somehow drained off into the sink with, like, without leaving a mess. Okay. okay. She invented the zippity do which is the coolest. It, it's These an names. Oh my god. It's Keep a, going. Sorry. It's an elastic cord that connected over the shoulder to the zipper on the back of a dress, which allowed oh you to god. unzip your dress by yourself. I, can we bring it back? Like, where did it go? Because it's I, called the zippity do. I mean, okay, so that would make sense. But, like, <laughs> I, I constantly have this problem, and I have to go to my husband, and my husband's like, what do single women do in this case? I'm like, what? I don't know. Like, yeah, uh-uh. the zippity-do. I want it. I need it. Yeah. Um, and then her last invention was called the Denta Loop, which was a circular flossing product. Which I think also still exists. I feel like I'm envisioning oh, like a floss yep. circle thing. They give that to kids when they have braces too. They're like, especially if you have braces, because they want you to like really pull it through. Oh yeah, I got a package of those and then never use them. Right. <laughs> so uh huh. I ignored those fuckers for a long time. <laughs> so yeah, those were all of her awesome inventions that she was just creating while being at home and like you know doing what she was doing then to marion's surprise someone finally capitalized on her disposable diaper idea which took place 10 years after she had initially went into the market to pitch the idea so probably in the early 1970s it finally was officially invented and marketed and it was invented by a man. Oh, sure it was. Whose name was Victor Mills, and he is no. none other than the creator of Pampers. Oh, well, thanks, Victor Mills. Pampers, Great. the mm-hmm. number one fucking diaper brand in the world. Yep. Yep. What a douche. Was he in one of those pitch meetings? And he's Had like, to you know been. what? Had to you know have been. Right? Yeah, ugh, life's unfair. I hate it. So Victor Mills was rewarded for coming up with the idea. And he was coined a genius who made women's and parents' lives easier across the globe. Oh, thank God for the Victor Mills of the world. Oh, what would we do without you copying a woman's invention? Thank you. Thank you, sir. So over the course of her life, Marion earned a dozen, sorry, she earned over a dozen patents for all of the inventions that she created, like all those things that I had already list off. And for many years, she went on to also work as a product development consultant for a couple of different companies. 
She ended up dying at 81 years old on November 4th, 1998 in Manhattan, New York, due to heart disease. When she did die, she did receive a little bit of attention uh, that she obviously deserved for her diaper creation, but she is still largely unknown in the household of parents everywhere. And today, the disposable diaper business is a $6 billion industry that I'm sure Pampers, like, is leading the pack. Oh, yeah. And and men now, like, have their equivalent to the baby shower called the fucking diaper party. Like, fathers-to-be provide the beer and the men bring the diapers and they all, like, shoot the shit in the backyard and talk about, oh, fatherhood's <laughs> gonna be so hard as you do nothing. <laughs> Sorry, I'm generalizing. I just... It's pretty wild. So... Because mine's pretty short, not too short, but shorter than normal, I decided I wanted to make a list of a couple other women inventors that maybe people don't know of. So I just threw together this list really quick just so that we can pour one out, shout them out, clap out a couple of other women out there who'd invented things that none of us know about. Yeah. So first up is Margaret E. Knight, who invented the paper bag in 1871. She actually invented a machine that folded and glued paper to create a flat bottom paper bag. So she technically invented both. But like the paper bag has still to this day is like used constantly. Like especially during Marion's time when moms were putting kids like food in a paper bag and sending them off to school. Like the brown lunch bag. It's iconic. Yep. So that was Margaret E. Knight. And then uh, in 1872, a year later, Joseph Cochran invented the dishwasher and the electric dishwasher. I think there was like some other version before that. And her company was later bought out by KitchenAid. Ah, that one. I was like, General Mills or KitchenAid? Like, KitchenAid. G- no, sorry, not GE. Yeah, General Electric. General Mills is cereal. GE, General <laughs> Electric or... Yeah, kitchen yep. aid. And they actually still list her as one of their founding inventors. So oh, that's good. cool. Mm-hmm. Um, then a couple years later in 1903, Mary Anderson invented the windshield wiper, which at the time didn't exist. And it was really important that they had that because it would prevent ice, snow, and rain from stopping people from driving long distances. Because if the weather conditions were bad, they just didn't leave. But the windshield wiper allowed them the ability to continue to travel because they didn't have to worry about not being able to see. So Mary Anderson, good job. A few years after that, in 1908, Mary A. Delaney invented the retractable dog leash. Okay. (laughs) I thought that was interesting. Well, people still use it today. Yeah. I mean, I think it's more popular now than when right? I remember having a dog in the nineties. Right? Like, That's what I'm saying. Uh-huh. I don't we never had a retractable dog leash when I was growing up. Yeah. It was invented nineteen oh eight. That okay. same year, Melida Bentz invented the coffee filter. So those little things you put in the coffee pot that filters the water through, yeah, didn't exist before her. Then, a couple years after that, in 1914, Florence Parpart invented the modern refrigerator, which basically made the common icebox, like, go extinct once the refrigerator was created, although it was only able to be used in houses that had electricity, so that was definitely a Mm. status thing. 
Yeah, but those ice boxes always always fascinated me, and I don't know if you watched Downton Abbey at all or I ever did. No. Also, a really good pandemic binge because there are no high stakes. It's rich people being rich people, and it's just like so. It's such a good comfort watch, but like. Every time a new electronic thing was introduced, because it takes place between 1912 and 1922, I think, like that whole series, you know, like the first episode, they get electricity at the Abbey, and it was like, oh my god, and uh, they're so worried, and one kitchen maid was like, I hear that this other mansion had uh, electricity in the kitchens, and the the, the kitchen maid's like, whatever for? And it's like, and then... (laughs) When the cook finally got a refrigerator, she was scared of it. It was like... That's hilarious. Uh Uh-huh. So that's just always fun. But anyway, go on. So three more. In 1930, Ruth Wakefield invented chocolate chip cookies because her and her husband were owners of the Toll House Inn, where she would prepare delicious treats for her guests. Wink, wink, Toll House cookies. I see, yeah. Crazy, huh? I love it. Um, and then in 1969, Marie Van Britten Brown invented the first security system, which was a system of four peepholes and a movable camera that connected wirelessly to a monitor in her bedroom. It also allowed for a two-way microphone that allowed her to have a conversation with whoever was on the outside. And then there was a button that could send off an alarm or remotely unlock the door. So she, like, invented this in duo with her husband, who was an electrician. But she came up with the idea because she said that far too often she felt unsafe in her home when she was home alone. Well, yeah. I don't blame her. And then the last one, 1970, Shirley Ann Jackson invented caller ID and call waiting. She was a theoretical physicist. I picked these women because I'd never heard of them before. There's tons of other inventors, many of which were women I had heard of. So I was like, oh, this is a nice list of women that I'd never heard of before that created things that we use today and often every day. So pretty cool. Um, can I add two more? Yes. Um, th- and I and I wanted to double check these two. So because um, I had heard this before. Uh, Anna Connolly in 1887, in an effort to prevent deaths of uh, multi-story buildings, patented the exterior fire escape. Oh, so yeah, that was a, a woman. Uh, all those uh, ladders and yeah, in New York City and anything with a tall building. Anna Connolly. Thank you, Anna. And then. Um, Maria Beasley, in 1882, invented the life raft. Or she had, yeah, she had her life raft uh, patented. So, inflatable life rafts. Maria. Woo, Maria! Those were just, like, the two that I knew were invented by women. I'm like, I just gotta find their names, because, yeah. I'm hearing a lot of common sense and uh, useful (laughs) things, tools. Doesn't surprise me, made by women, I'm just saying, like... Well, and if you think about it, a lot of these things are related to stuff that women were dealing with. The paper bag, the dishwasher, the refrigerator, the coffee filters, walking the dog, making cookies, Uh needing to feel safe in your home, being on the phone, call waiting. (laughs) Dude, I'm so sick of missing the calls. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, super interesting. And, of course, several of these women had... um, 
they're i think literally the first one marguerite knight the paper bag inventor she had it stolen by a man and took him to court and then won good good for her good yeah he of course said some snotty thing like a woman could never invent such a machine and she's like watch me yeah tonight like your lady also reminded me of joy uh i can't remember her last name and i feel so bad but you know like jennifer Lo- yes. yeah yeah jennifer like the the, the mop and that like cause she was just the constant inventor since she was a kid as well and you're right i forget her name too joy something joy mangano Yes, yes, it was an Italian last name. Mm-hmm. So she invented uh, the self-ringing miracle mop. Yeah, and was cool enough for David uh, David O. Russell to make a movie about it, starring Jennifer Lawrence. I'd actually, I mean, not to that movie was fine, but I think I'd rather watch a movie with your lady. It's, uh... <laughs> you know what? I will say there's a hilarious video that you can watch on YouTube that was created by The Daily Show. They did like a comedy act where they told her story and did it in a humorous way. And I think that's like one of the only thing out there in modern time that exists about Marion Donovan. That's the only thing I found. So I'll also link that in the show notes because it's really funny and it's only like five minutes long. So really quick to watch and good. So yeah, that's Marion. That. That's Marion and a list of really awesome women that created and invented things that they should be getting credit for. So shout out to all the smart women inventors. What a perfect choice for Women's History Month. Seriously. like That's what I thought. I was like, what am I going to do for this episode? I always cover like wild stories of women in history all over the world. And it's always something like really like wild yeah or scandalous like yeah, yeah. i did like, a concubine our yeah last episode, exactly so. <laughs> i'm like i kind of just want to cover a woman that you know has a pretty basic like middle class upper middle class american lifestyle but contributed in a really huge way and nobody knows of her and if she had gotten credit for what she created she would be really the heir of a six billion dollar industry <laughs> It wouldn't be Pampers. Oh, yeah. No, to be fair, though, it'll probably be another really um, unfortunate name. Totally. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. You're right. You're right. (laughs) But to any moms out there that are currently putting Pampers on your babies, just shout one out to your girl, Marion Donovan, because she actually made that diaper. She's the reason why you don't go insane cleaning shit out of clothes. (laughs) Well, you still do that, but you don't do it, like, as often as you could. So, thank you, Marion Donovan. Yeah, that's my story. Thank you. What a lovely one. All right. So, Melissa, I have a very important question for you. Now, this question has been asked about among women for many years. uh, Over 100 years, I'm guessing. And it's the equivalent to asking what your Hogwarts house is. So it's very, or your your Zodiac side, because it's very um, telling of your personality. So keep that in mind. Okay. Who is your favorite March sister? March sister? Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know what a March sister is. (laughs) Did you ever watch or read Little Women? 
No. Oh, no. (laughs) I know what you're talking about now. No, I never watched or read Little Women, but I have a girlfriend who's obsessed with it, and now I know what you're talking about. Okay. Oh, I blew it. You did, but it's okay. I'm going to inspire you, maybe not to read Little Women, but maybe at least watch one of the adaptations, because I... I'm going to talk about the Little Women's author, Louisa May Alcott. So wasn't there just a Little Women that came out not that long ago? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the 2020 movie by Greta Gerwig, and it stars um, Saoirse Ronan, Emma Watson, Florence Pugh, uh, Laura Dern, um, Meryl Streep's in it too, like everybody, <laughs> everybody at Tim- Timothy Chalamet, Um and it became, like, my all-time favorite movie. And especially during the pandemic, it was such a comfort watch. Like, I watched that obsessively. Because it just it's just so good. And yeah. granted, I never read the book growing up. Like, that that genre wasn't keen to me as a kid. Like, I didn't, like, uh, enjoy the classic children's books when uh-huh. I was a child. I do now as an adult. But, like, when I was a kid, I was all about mysteries and whatnot. But um, when I watched Little Women, um, the movie, I was, after that, I was like going, I am obsessed. I get why. It's so, it's just great. And like, (laughs) and when I was walking in, I remember seeing with my friend, like going, so I've never read it, but I know that, I know the few basic um, principles. Everyone is supposed to like Joe. Like, Joe's ultimately the favorite. Beth is the goody two-shoes. And Amy's a bitch. (laughs) Like, everyone's supposed to hate Amy. And I already knew that. Like, from the years of, like, the reputation. So, but I wanted to talk about um, a beloved children's author who actually, as I was researching her, has way more of a bibliography than than I've ever realized. Like, she's written a lot. But she's mostly only known for... Little Women. So. I actually didn't even realize that was considered a children's book. Mm-hmm. It was a children's book. So we're going to talk about Louisa May Alcott, author of Little Women and many other stories. So. Awesome. I'm going to be watching that movie this weekend. Please do. And you have to report back to me. I will. Because. Oh, perfect. Yes. Keep me informed. I must know. So. Um. Louisa May Alcott was born November 29th, 1832 in Germantown, Pennsylvania. Her parents were a transcendentalist Amos Alcott and Abby May. And Abby May, her mom was a social worker. And she was the second to four children. Now, granted, Melissa, I know that you you are not familiar with Little Women. But as we go on with the story, you're going to catch a lot of things. Like when you rewatch them, when you watch the movie. Mm-hmm. Little Women is loosely based on her life. So we're just going to keep going on. Like, uh, yeah. Uh, so she was the second to four children. Her, the oldest sister was Anna Bronson Alcott. Um, her, she was Louisa May. Um, then there was Elizabeth Sewell Alcott. And then the youngest, Abigail May Alcott, who was supposed to be the Amy. Eh. <laughs> um, so the Alcotts moved to Boston in 1834, where Amos established an experimental school and joined a transcendental club with, and I'm, you know, casually dropping some famous authors here. Like, this was, you know how in the 20s where F. Scott Fitzgerald and um, Gertrude Stein yes. and uh, uh, P- Picasso and mm-hmm. uh, Hemingway all hung out together and yep. drank? Well, these guys over on the East Coast, like, 
Um, Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau, like, started a school together, and Nathaniel Hawthorne all hung out, apparently, so they were, they were, like, this cozy little club. Um, but, you know, even though Alcott, like, he had, like, very open views about nature and whatnot with these other guys, he kind of sounded like a huge dick. Um, he was... (laughs) Really strict on child rearing, and he didn't like that Louisa May Louisa May Alcott had like a lot of independence. She was very tomboyish and was very independent, like our protagonist Joe in Little Women. Like he didn't like that, and also his wife Abby May, you know, she Abigail, the mother, resented her husband as like he didn't recognize her sacrifices that she had to make. And he also seemed to be pretty fucking sexist. So um, Abby kind of passed down the recognition of needless wrongs toward women to Louisa. <laughs> like, she pretty much kept telling Louisa, like, uh, uh, women are screwed all the time. Like, <laughs> I mean, she uh, wasn't wrong. She's not wrong. Like, she was being very, like, straightforward with her yeah. daughter. And, and he, uh, you know, Elmos was also, I guess, kind of mentally unstable. So, like... That really shaped a lot of Louisa's formative years. But throughout the years, like between 1840 and 1845, the family moved uh, to uh, around a lot, but most they went out to Concord, Massachusetts. Um, and they moved a lot. Like they moved 22 times in 30 years. So. What? Why were they moving? I mean, like, there were a couple reasons why some of it was, like, hard times. At one point, Louisa's dad uh, started a utopian commune (laughs) called the Fruitlands Utopian Commune in Massachusetts. It has its own Wikipedia page, by the way. It didn't last long, um, but they lived on that uh, commune for a while. But um, they finally settled in Concord um, for a little bit, and I think that's where they stayed a little bit longer than other places, but... They eventually moved away from that, too. So it was just, like, constantly moving around. But even with Oliver moving, since they were still located in and around Concord, Massachusetts, the majority of Louise's teachings came from her father. But, again, subtly name-dropping, here are the uh, people who actually taught Louisa too. Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Waldard, Waldo Emerson, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Margaret Fuller, Julia War- uh, Ward-Ho. Like, how? All of these big, like... 19th century authors and poets and just yeah that was what shaped her early life so Louisa and her sisters though still had like work a lot in order to make ends meet um Louisa had some stints as a teacher a seamstress a governess a domestic helper and she actually also did write and she got paid for writing and like her childhood was a bit tumultuous but like with all that writing became like her escape her release so she really like got into that and one cool fact in 1847 the alcott served as a station masters for the underground railroad and they did hold a slave yeah so they were they were very they were a big abolitionist and uh louiso also grew up to be not only a huge abolitionist but uh, also a suffragette um and i'll get more into that later too but her first book, uh, Flower Fables, was published in 1849, and it was a selection of tales originally written for Ellen Emerson, who was Ralph Waldo Emerson's daughter. So, like, kind of as a favor, hey, I wrote your daughter a bunch of tales, and they end up getting that published. So that was pretty cool. Then, during, like, the 1950s, the Alcotts were still having a rough time of it. Like, 
I mean, it was just a rough time for everybody. You had the civil war going on. You like they weren't rich by any means, but um, Louisa uh, in the 1850s started like going to the theater too, and she was she worked a, a little bit with the Boston theater out that way, and she actually wrote a play called The Rival Prima Donnas, which is no longer in extant. Like, it, it doesn't exist anymore because, and you want to talk about Petty, and maybe this is also where famous scene in Little Women where Amy burns Joe's book out of spite. Um, there was a quarrel between the actresses on who, on the main actress on who would play which role. And Louisa says, you know what? No one's going to play any role. And she just <gasps> burnt it. <laughs> She's what? like, I am not having this shit. <laughs> like, no. So, yeah. Whoa. Wait, so in, that happened in the Little Women's story, but also in real life. Yeah, so it was it was already common knowledge that Little Women was loosely, like very loosely based. There was obviously some um, inspiration going on in her life, and she was obviously Joe. Like, yeah, no duh. But in Little Women, and this is why Amy is so universally hated. <laughs> if everyone read her, was that you know Amy got mad at Joe about something, and when Joe went out one night. Amy went and burned Joe's book and like Joe was a huge writer. That's all she loved to do was write. And so Joe comes home and finds out that Amy burnt her book. And Amy's like, well, I really did want to hurt you. And I knew this would hurt you. So ever since then. So do you want to hear something interesting? Yes. Amy is actually my favorite March sister. Uh huh. And, and because Greta Gerwig redeemed her, Greta Gerwig and Florence Pugh, redeemed her in this latest movie like she's not the 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 shitty little sister that everyone who was growing up and reading and watching little women believe like they gave amy more depth and like more character development so like amy does a lot of shitty things in the book too like not only does she like burn her sister's book but like in the end she had a childhood friend who proposed to her and she said no. Um, they, you know, they would make terrible husband and wife and this guy was totally in love with her for years and she's like, no. Uh, but when Joe finally, like a couple years later, is like, oh, maybe I was too quick to turn down his proposal. I think I'm going to ask him to marry me. He comes home and guess who he's married to? <gasps> Amy. So yeah, there's like, <laughs> oh. that's why... Everyone's like, Amy's the worst. But <laughs> Whoa. No. Also, why are you diddle-daddling between sisters? What? Weren't they sisters? Yes, but I, when you watch the movie, you'll get it. Because, like, the movie also really kind of showed you that Amy has had a crush on this guy for years. Oh. Like, she was also watching him going, yeah. I love you. And, um... And, and it totally makes sense. And that's why I'm saying, like, they totally rounded her out and made her... Not only was she just... She's... I get her. She's pragmatic. That's her biggest thing. And so it's like, all right, Amy. I appreciate Amy now. So that's my my little woman. I like Amy March. She's my favorite. <laughs> so yeah, she, she burned up this play because the actresses were being uh, prima donnas. Kind of fitting. But she's like, no. Um... But, you know, as with some writers in a hard life that she had, Louisa kind of became seriously depressed and was even contemplating suicide. But she was like, also, you know, as a writer, you're also a big reader. And she was reading um, uh, Charlotte Bronte's memoirs and realizing, like, she's really connecting with this author. So she's like, well, if Charlotte Bronte can do it, I can do it and we can live our lives and be okay, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, 
Oh, and then her younger sister, Elizabeth, died, unfortunately. And then also her older sister, Anna, got married. And then she felt like that was the end of her childhood. Like, that was like the... And Little Women, that reflects it. Like, Meg gets married, and then Beth dies. And I'm sorry, I'm not... If that's a spoiler, (laughs) it's been over 150 years, so... (laughs) Um, You know, that... That, that becomes the end of her childhood, and she, like, really feels that, and which was kind of led to her depression as well. So, um, in 1860, Louisa started writing for the Atlantic Monthly. Um, during the Civil War, she also worked out as a nurse at a Union hospital for three weeks. She actually was planning to do it for six months, but she developed typhoid fever uh, and became too ill, so she couldn't, like, finish out her stint, which sucks, but, like, yeah, um... Uh, her and her family were uh, definitely like against slavery. Like I said, they're abolitionists, so they were like really for the cause and did everything they could to try to assist the Civil War. So her letters home, which were actually like published in, um, in a Boston anti-slavery paper called Commonwealth, and um, they were also collected uh, collected as a storybook called Hospital Sketches which was first published in 1863 and then republished again in 1869, actually was the first time that it brought her critical recognition for her observations and humor. Because, you know, <laughs> you, you can't go through shit like this and not, I guess, have a sense of humor. So Totally. And this was, uh, this was her first book, ultimately, like this collection of letters, and it inspired, it was inspired ultimately by her army experience. So um, she wrote about like the mismanagement of hospitals and the indifference and callousness of some of the surgeons she encountered. And like, just about seeing the war from her own firsthand, like, yeah, so she wrote that all down and got it published. And People liked what she wrote. So, you know, in between 1863 and 1872, uh, Alcott anomalously wrote at least 33 gothic thrillers. So you think of, like, Little Women as being, like, her one thing. Like, but she wrote 33 gothic thrillers for popular magazines and papers. (laughs) And, like, a lot of them were missing for a long time, but uh, many were rediscovered in 1975. So it's just kind of like, yeah, she was, like wrote a lot (laughs) well and it was all published too or these were just writings that she has stored away as like things she'd written oh no they were published they were like well well i i don't know because i know they were written for popular magazines and papers but i assumed uh that they were published and one of her famous ones is called the flag of our union but yeah they yeah they had been published in magazines she was getting paid for them which you know even at that time uh female authors are a stint which was why also she started writing, like, under a nom de plume. So, like, she wrote some novels and stories underneath the name A.M. Barnard, hoping that that will get her published easier and maybe get paid more, you know? And, of course, a lot of her hurdles with, like, publishing and newspapers and stuff was, like, you know, if you're going to have a female heroine, she either had to be married or had to be dead by the end of it. Like, there was nothing in between. That so. is just so wild. But it was true. And then Alcott was also credited with writing some of the earliest detective fictions. So, like, you know how detective stories are really big here, too? Like, they were, of course, in, like, the UK with Sherlock Holmes and whatnot. But Edgar Allan Poe was credited with being the first American author. She was the second to write a detective story. Whoa. Mm -hmm. So she's, again, we all know Edgar Allan Poe, but not as much as Louisa May Alcott. I 
I mean, I know he wrote a lot of poems and stories, but I really want to put their bibliographies side by side. I'm like, going, okay, but who really wrote more? Because I'm going to list it. I'm going to list out the numbers of books that she wrote and you'll see. Um, so as we get to her most famous, Alcott became even more successful because she was already successful pre-Little Women. But she wrote Little Women um, and, and it was published in 1868. And then she went to Europe for a while and once she was in Europe, she became an editor of a magazine called Mary's Museum. And it was uh, there that she met Thomas Niles, who encouraged her to continue on with the story of Little Women. So Little Women was originally published um, like in two parts. There was Little Women Part 1 and Little Women Part 2. And then it just got, like, later it was republished to be, like, that whomping novel that we see today. Mm-hmm. That wasn't that big before. It's just they finally went squish. Part one, part two together. So they had already, she had already wrote about Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy's life together at like sisters living in Concord, Massachusetts with their mom. You know, weirdly enough, her dad was off fighting the Civil War and not in the picture. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So (laughs) it was all about her sisters and her mom. Yeah. But yeah, and then like, Thomas Niles is like, why don't you write about their adulthood? Like, bring it back. And so she pretty much wrote the sequel, and it still was popular when she published it. And then she even wrote, like, oh, well, the part two was called Good Wives. So glad they got rid of that. (laughs) And then in 1871, she published Little Men, which details Joe's life at Plumfield School that she founded with her husband, Professor Bear. And, you know, in Little Women, she, she marries a guy named Professor Bear, and they open a school together. Right? But again, I'm going to bring back Louisa May Alcott never married. Oh. And nope, she was uh, she was a spinster all her <laughs> life, which uh, for me, spinsterhood it sounds pretty fucking great. I don't know. But uh, she was a spinster, and I put that in air quotes, and she didn't want her main character, Joe, and Little Women to get married off. You know, like that was like she, like Joe throughout the entire book and the movie constantly say, I don't want to get married. I'm not the marrying type. And then in the movie, in the 2020 Greta Gerwig version, she brings this to the publisher and the publisher, like after some hum and haw, but his daughters read the book and he, and the daughter's like, dad, what happens to the little women? And he's like, really? You liked this? So he brings her back in. He's like, fine, we'll publish it, but she has to be married. And Joe's like, no. And he's like, yeah, but you have to. And she's like, it doesn't make any sense. And he's like, who cares? Oh and so God. they have this whole argument. So, that's actually how Louisa May Alcott, she didn't want Joe to get married at the end of the book, but her publisher made her do it. So this was Greta Gerwig's like kind of salute to like, sure, we'll end it in the traditional way of the book, but only with that scene in between where the editor forces her to write that scene. Wow. Like, so it was like a salute to what her original, what she envisioned her original ending to be was like, no, she stayed single. So was it just that it was too absurd for anybody to depict a woman not in marriage? Was it right. like offensive yes, exactly. to the family or family not, values? Maybe not offensive, but why would a woman be happy and independent with her life if she wasn't married with a family? And then it like the only time anyone would up, want to read about a woman is if it ended up happily ever after, i.e. romance, or if it was a tragedy and she died. <laughs> like... Yeah, that was that was a serious problem, but uh, I I just have to salute Greta for giving Louisa that that dedication that the ending that she always wanted yep. and never could get. So 
She explained her spinsterhood in an interview with Louise Chandler Moulton. These are her words. I am more than half persuaded that I am a man's soul put by some freak of nature into a woman's body. Because I have fallen in love with so many pretty girls and never once at least a bit with any man. So. Whoa. Oh. So there might be some more like. She was Aunt Louisa for a reason, if you know what I'm saying. Like, Interesting. But never confirmed. Like, she also, I think it was, uh, she did have a romance in Europe with a young Polish man, and I can't pronounce his name, Ladislas Laddie Wisniewski. Um, and, you know, she detailed them in her journals, but um, she did also, I guess, and I I, I want to try to find the validity of the statement because I'm not really sure how this can make it true. Apparently, she detailed this relationship with this man in her journals, but, like, before she died, she deleted it or, like, tried to erase that. I don't know. But I'm like, well, if she erased it, then how do we know? But I don't know. I, I She probably really did have some flings with some women, especially if she spent time in Europe. I mean... Know. Well, and she's this like author, which is typically what part of like this like artsy certain scene of people, a little eclectic, a little quirky out there, probably. Yeah, it just and, and successful too. Like not only was she a writer, but she was a successful writer. Like she was making, she was earning money from her writing. So yeah. it wasn't like it was anything discovered. Her her genius wasn't discovered until after her death. No, like she was making a living doing well like so and though she like i said she didn't marry but she did take in may's daughter and abigail may um was her youngest sister so she did take in abigail may's daughter uh, after abigail may died um in 1879 so this her niece became her ward and they called her lulu but yeah little women was like really well received when it was published everyone called it like a fresh natural representation of daily life and eclectic magazine which is actually the name of the magazine a reviewer from that magazine called it the very beast of books to reach the hearts of the young of any age from 6 to 60 and i can tell you 150 years later watching it and like reading it again i'm like going it still Fuck it sticks. Like, it is charming. It is sweet. It stood the test of time. I'm so pissed I haven't read or seen it. it. Like, you just feel like a little bit of your life has been robbed. Like I feel that way. But what was also really funny was that even though she got, re- like, she was a successful writer and she got really famous after writing Little Women, she hated the spotlight. Like, it was even commented that um, when people would come to her house... Alcott would pretend to act like a servant in her own house to get away from fans. Like fans would show up at her house and she's like, I'm but I'm just the maid here. I'm sorry. Oh my god. Like she just did not like the attention at all. So And they didn't know what she looked like because back then, how would you know? You just knew that Louisa May Alcott lived in Concord and she lived that way at that house. And then, like, <laughs> and they all, like, they would show up to see her. And she's like, I'm, I'm just but a maid. I don't know anything. Um, so outside of her amazing writing career, where did this fact go? Because I wanted to tell this to you. Uh, based on her, like, suffragist, um, she was actually, she was in 1877, Alcott was one of the founders of the Women's Educational and Industrial Union in Boston. Um, and then she was also the first woman to register to vote 
in Concord, Massachusetts. So cool. Yep, she went to register to vote for a school board election over there. That's so, incredible. Yeah, and she was still like a big advocate for uh, women's rights and suffrage her whole life and was all about it. And so she, but you know, she had a lifetime of health problems. Some historians blame it on like mercury poisoning because during her typhoid fever stint the in the Union Hospital, like they treated it with mercuries, but other historians dispute that maybe she was just had an autoimmune disease. So, oh, I shit. mean, what, what's a writer if not having to suffer? I mean, I feel like that's the... <laughs> if, you, if you're not an alcoholic, you have to, like, be in pain somehow. Oh, my I don't. God. So, but she did die of a stroke at age 55 in Boston on March 6, 1888. And Lulu, who was only eight years old, was then just shipped off to another sister named Anna. So, like, she pretty much raised Lulu her entire life. And she unfortunately was lost... so young. Yeah. When she died. 8.55. As a, mm-hmm. of a stroke? That seems wild. Well, again, all of her health problems. Like, it wasn't like, no one seemed surprised by this death either. It was like, well, one, she was 55 and it was 1888. So she was probably, in 1888 standards, pretty high up there. But, yeah, she was sick constantly. That's and so sad. I know. Imagine what she could have written, like afterwards because damn all right so do you want to hear her numbers because this is i think what shocked me the most yes i'm gonna list out the numbers and like her whole bibliography you can find it on her wikipedia or whatever so the little women series and stories there are four of them novels she published under her own name 12 novels published under a.m barnard name three one novel published anonymously 12 short story collections for children and then 14 short stories and novelettes just for adults. Whoa. Yeah. So she clearly never had writer's block. I mean, she, like, <laughs> it sounded like from her childhood and with her antics with her sisters and, like, growing up in a fucking commune, she had experiences and, like, also had a lot of opinions and wanted to share them. And great teachers like Ralph Waldo Emerson and Nathaniel Hawthorne. And, yeah, so she was, like, a legendary American author that we, like, again, all I knew her from was Little Women. And then I looked at her bibliography and was like, oh, shit, that's, that's sad. That I didn't even know that she had this illustrious of a career. It is sad. You know what? It also just, like, pains me to think about how, like, real that still is today, though. I was just, like, I don't remember who I was thinking about, but somebody, a different author who I'm totally blanking on, it, like, was brought to my attention that they had written, like, 12 books before this one. And I'm thinking, like... To think that authors spend so many years of their lives making books that maybe no one reads. Like, yeah, how rough would it be to have that be your profession? Like, sure, you're writing and you're loving it and you're producing good stuff. But, like, I feel like it's like a podcaster today finally hitting the jackpot. Like, the chances, know. you know? It feels like, like, it seems like it was a, I mean, it still is today really hard to become successful with your book and the book is something that takes so freaking long to make yeah oh yeah definitely oh uh, so what was the name of the book by the way do you I remember no i literally i can't, it's not even the book i was reading about a woman and i was learning about her 
it's somebody that no one likes, and I can't remember her name. Anne She's R- like Anne Ride. No, no, it's no. not somebody that historical. It was um a woman today who's like one of those self help people, and she like finally got it big with one of her books, but she had Rachel written Hollis. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. I was reading something about her, or I don't know what I was doing, but it was about her and about how she had written like all these books before her like girl wash her face or whatever it was. Yeah, I haven't read any of her books, but I also didn't know that she. Like, I guess I had thought that that was just, like, her first book and she'd hit it big with that book. Me too. I didn't yeah. know she'd written, like, tons before that. I just know I have a friend who's been, like, writing a book for, like, four years. And I just think about, like, to put in as much time as people put in. And then you've got, like, these authors like Stephen King who are just shelling out book after book. And, I mean, not to say that Stephen King isn't a great author. He deserves the status that he has. But... If anyone has listened to my podcast and I've bitched about it over and over and I'm going to I'm going to bring this bitchy to this audience. Are you ready? Us focusing on the white male author in the United States is just astounding to me. And it wasn't until like the last few years that I'm ashamed to say this uh, in my late 20s that I was like, I read one of Margaret Atwood's book for the first time. And I was like, oh, I really like her writing. I wonder what else she's done. <gasps> Turns out Margaret Atwood's wrote a hell of a lot of books. I'm like going, are you kidding me? Like, why was she never introduced to me? She is, yeah. uh, I'm just, I'm discovering all of these amazing female authors late in my 20s. And it pisses me the fuck off that I was never introduced to them early. We only read one book in American Lit in high school that was by a woman. And that was Harper Lee. That was it. That was it. I think A Handmaid's Tale would have been a great book to read in high school. <laughs> um, also, to, to kind of combine yours and mine about authors and men taking um, mm-hmm. credit for women, if anyone wants to go down the Zelda Fitzgerald and Escott Fitzgerald rabbit hole about who really wrote some of Escott yep. Fitzgerald's work, <laughs> yep. hmm. Zelda's finally coming through with her redemption story a hundred years later. Thank fucking God. But I know. Zelda's also been on my list for I know, forever. I was like, do I want to cover Zelda too? <laughs> I even have a bottle of wine that I got from Costco that's like reminded me of Zelda that I've literally just been holding on to until okay, I cover so, her. Okay, <laughs> uh, so I will not, I will relinquish Zelda to you. You have the wine, but... Oh my god. Well, I'm so stoked that you covered her today. I am immediately making a date with myself for Saturday night to watch Little Women. I cannot wait. I'll be live please. tweeting you during the whole thing. Oh my god, please, thing. yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'll be like, and then this is my favorite part. Oh, just you wait. <laughs> well, that was amazing. Two awesome women in history who... I mean, mine's largely unknown. I technically didn't know your women, but I think probably everybody else that's listening does know I know, know at her. least one person <laughs> went, yes, in the car or whatever, but I, I hear you, person. No, I feel like way more. My mom loved Little Women. Like, I don't know why I missed that in my life. Well, I know why I missed it, it because I was a picky motherfucking reader when I was a kid, and I was like, ew, books about girls? I want mysteries. And that, that was all I read, so... <laughs> No, I, I did not I did not get into like Peter Pan or Little Women or Secret Garden until later in my life. Well, fuck yeah. Cheers to our women of the night. Happy <laughs> Women's History Month, baby. <laughs> Listeners, go invent something. Go write something. Be a boss ass bitch. 
Thank you guys so much for listening to another episode of Mimosa Sisterhood Podcast. If you've been loving the show and you've been getting some value from it, please do me a huge favor by submitting a star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts. It's a huge help in attracting new listeners, and it will show the Apple algorithm that we deserve to be here and to be featured on their platform. And once you do that, swing over to the Spotify app and give us a star rating over there as well. They recently just created ratings for podcasts, and we only have a handful and it's very tragic. So if you can help boost us over there on the Spotify platform, that would mean the absolute world. And once again, be a huge support in helping this podcast grow. Thank you guys so much. I love you all more than you'll ever know. And I'll see you next time. Bye.